Welcome back to the Known Pleasures podcast. Our apologies to our loyal listeners for the long absence since our last episode. We had some difficulty accessing a studio for a while there, but we are back on deck now. We appreciate your patience and hope it's been worth the wait. To celebrate our return to the microphones, we've decided to do another list podcast. Patrick, Mark and I have rummaged through our record collections and come up with our five favourite one-hit wonders from the post-punk and new wave era. Those artists that shone bright like a supernova for a brief period of time and then collapsed into the black hole of obscurity, never to be seen or heard from again. Remember to click on the link in the description that will take you to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. Okay guys, let's talk about pop music. Okay. Welcome back. This is uh, Known Pleasures, episode 31, our One Hit Wonders special. Guys, how have you been? It's been a while. Yeah, I'm well, Graham and, and, and Patrick. It's been a long time since mm. I've seen or spoken to either of you. What have, what have you been up to? <laughs> <laughs> well, Sydney, where we do the uh, podcast from, is uh, in lockdown at the moment, which is unfortunate for, for all of us. Again? We have, yeah, didn't you hear? Why wasn't I told? <laughs> Hold on. I'm actually out at the beach at the moment. I should get home. And it's winter, so it's not easy. Yeah. Yes, so that's uh, we're back on Zoom again. That's what's happening, yeah? Yeah, but that's okay. Which is a bit of a shame. There are plenty of people worse off than us, so we're not complaining. Oh, I'm complaining. We're all hands at Zoom anyway. We've been doing Zoom for a while, so we, we know what we're doing in this medium. Mm, well, speaking of which, do we, do we know what we're doing today? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, <laughs> this is our, our one-hit wonders special oh sorry i should say new wave one hit wonders podcast yeah and i think maybe i should go first is that okay with you guys oh absolutely this sounds like a great idea i can't wait to you know start doing some work on it (laughs) (laughs) no you need to be prepared mark like almost immediately okay all right i'll do my best you've been too busy down the beach (laughs) (laughs) exactly fire away graham okay Well, my first choice for New Wave One Hit Wonder is an American New Wave band called Martini Ranch. I don't know if you're familiar with these guys. A country western band, aren't they? They sound like it. They were uh, conceived in 1982 by a guy called Andrew Todd Rosenthal and a guy who you may be familiar with, he's an actor, or he became an actor, called Bill Paxton. Uh, Bill uh, became very famous. You may remember him as one of the three astronauts in Apollo 13. And um, have you guys ever seen the movie Titanic? Yes. Sadly, no. Oh, okay. Well, well, spoiler alert, the ship sinks at the end. Um, Hang on, you can't go past Bill Paxton's performance in Weird Science. Weird Science, well, yeah, no, I was, I was going to get that's, to that. That's what I'll always remember <laughs> In Titanic, he was the guy who had to listen to the old lady's story. He was trying to get the diamond or something. Well, well what does he do in the Martini Ranch song? <laughs> this is what I'm wondering. He's acting in the video or No, what? I want to talk more about Titanic. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the reason why I mention that is that you were right in that he was in Weird Science with uh, Anthony Michael Hall because Anthony Michael Hall makes an appearance in the video. Ah. And if you've ever seen the video, oh, sorry, I haven't even mentioned the name of the song yet. Yeah, the, song, <laughs> the song's called How Can the Labouring Man Find Time for Self Culture? Which is one of the longest 
song titles you'll hear. Yeah, it's very Marxist, isn't it? Yeah. And if you've ever seen the video for it, it mimics the dystopia of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. So it's like one of those oh. German expressionist uh, kind of videos. It's really good. But yeah, as I said, uh, Anthony Michael Hall makes an appearance, uh, as does a guy called Rick Rozovich, who was in Terminator. <laughs> But, but, let, but let's talk about the music. Yeah, let's talk about the music, okay. <laughs> well, that, that, they're similar in sound to late 80s Devo, and there's a reason for that, because it was produced and engineered by Bob Casal, uh-huh. who was the Devo keyboardist, and Alan Myers and Mark Mothersbaugh also make a, an appearance there. So it's uh-huh. no fluke that it does sound like Devo. And did it actually chart? Did it do anything? I think it did quite well in America. Okay. I do remember seeing it on TV here, but it wasn't a hit here. I've never heard of it, so you've got one up on me. Uh, well, what I love about the song is it's, it has a very robotic delivery of the lyrics, which was the style at the time. <laughs> And in the video, they um, they do that thing where they deliver the lyric and then turn their heads slightly to the right or to the left uh, in a kind of robotic manner. Uh, Diva used to do that a lot. Uh, it was kind of a staple of videos back then. All I can say at this point is if you like 80s version of Devo, you will love this song. Or the Titanic movie. Mm. Or the Titanic movie, yes. You'll love this. Can I make an observation about the song title? Yes. Uh, what surprises me is that the word labouring, they use the non-American spelling. So they use the, the O-U-R rather than the O-R. Oh, I didn't notice that. Mm. So as if they were going for like a British kind of new wavy sort of thing, as if it was kind of more credible to use the kind of British spelling, but as in the non-North American spelling. And the only other piece of trivia, which is apparently true, and uh, Bill Paxton, let's keep talking about Bill Paxton's acting career. <laughs> apparently he was the first person ever killed by the Terminator. Oh, really? In real life? In real life. Well, well, well sadly, he did, he did pass away, didn't he, a few years ago? Yeah, not long ago, that's yeah. right. I haven't seen Terminator, so I'm not sure. It's better than Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't tell me the ending of it. Oh, I won't. I won't. The Terminator drowns. That's all I've got to tell you. The band is playing as the Terminator drowns. <laughs> okay. Shall we move along? <laughs> yes. We can move along to Patrick now. What's your, what's your choice? My first choice is maybe a slightly controversial one. Uh, Driver's Seat by Sniffing the Tears. Ooh, I like and uh, yeah, I love the song, and I remember seeing it on the Australian Music Show Countdown as a kid. Um, and it sounded really different to nearly everything else. It was kind of edgy and urgent. And the band themselves didn't really look particularly punk or new wave, but their drummer and bass player did have skinny ties, so that was something. Um, <laughs> Good giveaway. Yep. On, but on the downside, their keyboard player appeared to have modelled his facial hair on uh, Cat Stevens. So, you know, it kind of could have gone either way there, you know, on the uh, image front. But the band took their name. Apparently, uh, the singer Paul Roberts suffered from hay fever. <laughs> so the manager called him Sniff. <laughs> and, and, the, and the tears. The band was already the tears. Ah. Um, and okay. I was trying to come up with a gag about the band name to say it'll end in tears. But nothing was quite working for me. So. Well, that, that, that never stopped Graham, so you should have just gone with it. No matter how lame, if you've got a gag, you should go with it. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It was a hit in the US, got to number 15. 
uh, in Australia got to number 13 um, because of record plant pressing problems. It didn't make the UK top 40, even though they were on top of the pops. I love this song, and uh, Stephen Morris from uh, New Order and Joy Division, he um, included it in his playlist at the end of his memoir, Fast Forward, Volume 2. So if it's got the stamp of approval from, from Joy Division, it's, you know, it's all right by me. It's <laughs> good enough for you. That, that's a fair call. Good song. What year was that, by the way? 1978. 78. Very oh, good. Really? Very good. It's a great song. I love it. Drive the seat. Well, I agree with that. Uh, I'm also going to go 1978. As you both know, I spent a year in England as a teen, 78 and 79. And I was introduced to this song by a girl that I was infatuated with at the time, my first girlfriend. And the song is called Jilted John by Jilted Mm. John. It was a sort of a comedy record by a chap whose real name was Graham Fellows. It was released in August 78. And it was a bit of a parody of punk songs at the time. It was produced, interestingly, by Martin Zero, who went on to be Martin Hannett, of course, of Joy Division and New Order fame and other things. Mm. It was one of those songs that was sort of started out as a bit of a joke. They recorded a demo. This chap was from uh, Manchester, I think. Took it into the the only one of the local punk sort of labels, which was Rabid Records. Uh, Managed to get it pressed there. Then EMI picked it up. Ended up being a UK number four hit. Yep. And I just remember seeing it on top of the pops, and it was it was just quite funny. The the refrain that everybody remembers is Gordon is a moron. Gordon is a moron. Gordon is a moron. But to <laughs> me, it's a bit of a bit pop forerunner. It reminds me of the sort of things that Blur would do, and and a few other bands would do, uh, sometime later with the sort of narrative story about you know love gone wrong and all that sort of thing, two chord thrash. But, but it was a funny song. It was a big hit, and I just remember it was one of the sort of first pop punk things that I kind of came across. I haven't heard it, but uh, I dare say when I put this podcast together, I will, I will have a good listen to it then. <laughs> Give it a spin. I don't think it was a hit anywhere else outside of England, but it was very of, of its time. It was it was one of those things that sounded like we knocked together very quickly. John Peel championed it. And as I said, it got to number four in the UK. So it was uh, quite a substantial hit. Uh, didn't John Peel say something like, if this was on a big label, it would be a hit and it ended up being a hit anyway? Something along well, those well, lines. Well, no, it ended up being on EMI, but in the oh, end, okay. it, did take it up and it was a big hit so he was right again yeah wow so there you go that's my that's my number five she's a slag and he's a creep she's a tart he's very cheap Okay, well, listen, because I took so long with Bill Paxton, (laughs) I will race through this one just to make up time. Okay, my next uh, choice, my number four, is The Politics of Dancing by Reflex. Reflex were an English new wave band formed in Birmingham in 81 by someone called John Baxter and Paul Fishman. I just want to mention that uh, a couple of the earlier lineups included um, some noteworthy people. The drummer Phil Gould uh, was an original drummer of this band. He went on to join Level 42. And weirdly enough, Mm. Phil Gould was replaced by another drummer called Mark King, who went on to be bass player of Level 42. (laughs) Wow. He was quite a capable drummer back in the day. What I love about the song is the singer gives a very David Bowie delivery, especially when he sings the words station to station. Station, station, He was making reference to that album title. It has the classic Simmons drum sounds, uh, lots of chorus guitar sounds, which is, as I said, the style at the time. 
It was released in 83. It went to number 28 in the UK, 24 in the US and 12 in Australia. And the politics of dancing was also on the soundtrack of a movie in 98 called The Edge of 17. And there was a Charlie's Theron movie in 2017 called Atomic Blonde. And uh, it was in the it was in the trailer of that movie. So it's uh, it's still getting a spin even in this day and age. Is it fair to say that was it for Reflex? I mean, we're talking about one hit wonders. That was it. I don't remember ever hearing them again. Yeah, that was pretty much it for these guys. Funnily enough, I, re- I remember being slightly irritated by the chorus, which is, I think, goes the politics of dancing, the politics of ooh, feeling good. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you hated and sort of lacked a bit of gravitas for me as an earnest, you know, a teenager. <laughs> and ironically, they released a single a couple of years later called How Much Longer? And it was taken off the shelves by their record company, EMI, because it was too political. <laughs> This particular song featured backing vocals by Sting. So obviously a song featuring Sting in 1985 was going to be political. And I think (laughs) EMI could sort of thought, let's have a listen to this song with Sting on backing vocals because it's going to be about a rainforest (laughs) for sure. Okay. I've never heard that song. I'll have to to give it a listen. I thought this was pretty much it from Reflex, but uh, obviously not. Yeah, it might have helped their career if the single How Much Longer had stayed on the shelves. (laughs) That's a good way of selling records. Okay, that's, that was it. That was my number four. Patrick, over to you. My next one is, well, I'm not sure whether I would call it my favourite or most kind of archetypal post-punk song almost, but it's like Money by Flying Lizards. The best things in life are free. Which is the classic DIY um, thrown together, you know, in someone's house, or it sounds like it was thrown together in someone's house, kind of um, song. And Flying Lizards were a sort of um, avant-garde kind of collective uh, with Deborah Evans Stickland on vocals, David Cunningham doing a lot of the other stuff, and a couple of other people. And I remember buying the self-titled album in 1979. It was probably on special or something, and you know, I was like 14 or 15 or something. And I listened to the first 10 seconds of the opening song, Mandalay, and I realised I'd made a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> and, uh, and Graham, Graham, if you can play the opening 10 seconds of Mandalay. You'd blown two ninety nine on this. <laughs> That's right. Uh, David Cunningham said that the song cost $9 plus the cost of a reel-to-reel tape and a couple of bus tickets. And it sounds exactly like a song that cost less than... <laughs> You know, 10 quid. But it's just so brilliantly kind of random and the middle eight is just crazy. And it's also really hilarious, the deadpan delivery of Deborah, who, you know, will cheerfully admit that she wasn't much of a singer. That's what I want. So, uh, yeah, I really love it. So it got to number five in the UK, number 11 in Australia, and just scraped into the US top 50. I think I remember seeing her on Countdown and uh, Mm. I think someone said to her... um, what do you think about people saying that you can't sing? And I remember her <laughs> saying, um, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> <laughs> is it worth mentioning that this is a Beatles cover as well? Uh, yes. yeah, well uh, yeah, actually it was, it was written by um, Barry Barry Gordy. Gordy. Yeah, it was and, Barry Gordy's uh, And, and oh. someone else. 
Mm. Yeah, so, so it's it was, a cover of a cover of a Beatles cover. Yeah, it's a Motown song originally. Yeah, I remember this being a very strange song, and, and it being in the charts was kind of energizing. The fact that something like this could be in the charts because it was quite. What was it? Seventy nine? Did you say? Yeah, mm. yeah. It's, it seems like a lot of the songs that we've chosen are around about seventy nine. And I was looking at my choices, thinking, well, that was a really good year for strange. Yeah. One hit wonders and things that popped up, and this was obviously one of them. Okay, Mark, it's up to you. All right. Well, in the same sort of vein, and I've just said how good 1979 was, I've jumped ahead to 1982 with um, Trio's Da Da Da. Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Uh, which is an equally strange, minimalistic kind of tune. Mm. There's a huge hit. It's very simple and very inelegant, maybe you might say. It reached number two in the UK, number four in Australia, but there's almost nothing to it. It's deliberately basic. But the trio was sort of, that was their whole thing. They were part of this um, movement, apparently, uh, called New German Wave, which had something to do with post-punk, obviously. But they preferred to be associated with the New German cheerfulness, as they (laughs) saw it, the New German Wave. I thought, you know, what sort of possessed them to come out with this? And then I had a look at the previous single and the subsequent single, and I thought, well, here we go. This is why they've called it Da Da Da. The first single was called Halt mit Fess ich Word Verrut, which is Hold On Tight, I'm Going Crazy. (laughs) And the single after Da 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 was Anna, Lass mich rein, Lass mich raus. Anna, let me in, let me out. (laughs) So there you are. So Da 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 is a hell of a lot easier. And, uh, and they had a huge hit with it. They, I think they sold uh, 13 million copies I saw. Wow, that is incredible. <laughs> Which is insane. <laughs> yeah, uh, from, yeah. From 1982. And it's, I yeah. think it's been covered by people subsequently as well, but it's, it's such a strange song. There's a cracker biscuit here in Australia called Sakata, mm. and they use that song as their jingle. And I know this because I had to recreate it recently. So I went back. Oh, to, really? I went back to the trio song. Had to listen to it. It was very easy to recreate because it's, I was going to say it wouldn't have taken you too long. <laughs> no, no. This was in your day job at the radio station. At the radio station, yes. Mm. yes. Had, to, had to had to recreate a um, a jingle. I imagine the people from Trio getting a, a royalty check every now and then from uh, from Australia. <laughs> They'll be laughing all the way to the bank with their new German cheerfulness. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> The extraordinary little detail for me was that the song was produced by a fellow called Klaus Vormann. Uh, and Klaus Vormann, among many other things, was John Lennon's bass player. I was going to say, isn't he a bass player? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So he played bass on Imagine and, like, that whole album. And he was part of, you know, like the Plastic Ono band and all that. Um, and he was also friends with the Beatles going back to the Hamburg days. Like, he was the cool Hamburg guy who they all thought was amazing, you know, back in 1962 or whatever it was. Yeah. And he also, Klaus Vormann, the guy who produced Da Da Da, was the artist who designed the Revolver Beatles album cover. So, <laughs> you know, which is one of the iconic, you know, record covers. And this is the guy going, um... This song is quite minimal, isn't it, guys? This is a good start, but what else have you got? <laughs> yeah. 13 million copies later. Mm, yeah. Uh, look, guys, I know how to play bass. Does that help? 
No, we, we don't want any of that, no. <laughs> How is it that each one of our um, podcasts seems to re- reference Revolver? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, everything goes back yeah. to the Beatles. That's it. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's my number four anyway, so mm, yeah. there you have it. Okay, Mark. Well, it's interesting that you should mention NDW, which stands for, as you said, New German Wave, mm. or it actually stands for Neue Deutsche Welle, because yeah, yeah. my my next choice is 99 Luftballons by Nina. Who are also Ooh. a part of the same um, movement, West German rock music combined with post-punk and new wave. I've got here typified by the band DAF. Do you remember DAF? <laughs> Oh, Dan Mussolini, one of my yeah. favourites. Deutsch-Amerikanische Freundschaft. Yes. German-American friendship, I think, was what yes. DAF was supposed to stand for. Oh, okay. Mm. I only know De Mussolini because there was a band uh, in Sydney called The Numbers who used to come to Brisbane every now and then. And at the beginning of every show and at the end of every show, they used to play De Mussolini. Ah, okay. So I, I heard this song mm. a, a million times. Mm. I, I really loved it too. Yeah, good song. So, yes, back to Nina. They had a, a song called 99 Luft Balloons. A direct translation is 99 Air Balloons. Mm. But the song became known in English as 99 Red Balloons. I don't know what's German for red. <laughs> Rot, I think it is, R-O-T. Weirdly, that word doesn't appear in the in the German uh, translation <laughs> of this song. Okay, so the uh, Nina's guitarist, Carlo Cages, he, he went to a Rolling Stones concert in West Berlin and noticed that some balloons were being released and he thought that the balloons looked like a spacecraft and he wondered what would, might happen if they floated over the Berlin Wall into the Soviet sector. This was what inspired the song. Mm, But the actual story of the song is uh, 99 balloons are mistaken for UFOs and a general sends pilots in to investigate. They find nothing but balloons. The pilots put on a large show of firepower and it worries the nations along the borders and it starts a war, which causes devastation. The last line of the song, and if you'll excuse my German, let me see if I can read it here. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be a phonetic retelling of this line. This is great radio. (laughs) It is. (laughs) I'm going to get criticised for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. 99 Jacques Creek leaps in keinen Platz per Sieger, which means 99 years of war have left no place for winners. So it was an anti-war song in the end. This is a very cheerful song, Grant. Did we do anything in the chat? Well, the the reason why I'm saying all this is because I think that's a great idea for a lyric. uh, I thought... um, you know, obviously a lot of time went into this, uh, the telling of this story mm. and people who heard the song just would have seen it as a, a nice sing-along pop tune. Mm. But um, it has, it's quite a dark undercurrent to it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. One of the weird things about the song is that uh, the, the German version was more popular in the US and Australia and in UK they had the English version. Mm, that's right, yeah. I don't know why that is. Which is no, it's very weird. Is it because they have a problem with the Germans? <laughs> <laughs> as if as if <laughs> I also love the transition from synth ballad to electro funk to punk pop
it got a lot of um, criticism for that because I didn't quite know where it was going to go. But I thought the transition was quite smooth between all three you know, different styles. And her vocal delivery also is very new wave. It's not classical singer style. It's, she delivers it in quite a monotone way. Uh, which I really like. Uh, so, yeah, that's it. That's my number three. My next song, it's a song that I always liked, but it's more like an iconic sort of post-punk song, I guess, and post-punk one-hit wonder, which is uh, Turning Japanese by The Vapors. Which got to uh, number one in Australia, number three in the UK. In fact, it was the number two song in Australia for 1980. So there was only one song in Australia that sold more than Turning Japanese in 1980. Wow. Which was a funky town. Was it You Can't Stop the Music? No, it was I Got You by Split Ends, in case you're wondering. Wow. But anyway. I Got You by Split Ends isn't a bad contender for a uh, post-punk hit single. No, 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 that's right. That's right. Um, but the thing that I hadn't realised about The Vapors was that the singer David Fenton, at the time of the band's success, he was a qualified lawyer. And in the late 70s, the firm he was working for wanted a clause added in his work contract saying that he couldn't be in a band as well as work for the company because it brought the firm into disrepute. <laughs> so, and if you picture David Fenton with a classic sort of po- post-punk kind of mullet and, you know, like a slightly rebellious look, you know, would you have wanted him in court, you know, helping you on a parking fine charge? <laughs> well, didn't I hear that he was working on immigration law? Oh, well, at that time. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought turning Japanese. Oh, oh yes, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> You guys, uh, it's been a long time. You've got to work man, with you. you. I, I, I was with you. I was with you on that one. Wow, I was so far behind. I was just, I was, you were, you were in next week and I was in last year. when that Graham, edit that, edit that to be funny. I'm sure you can. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. I, yeah, I was yeah. desperately trying to think of something to do with law <laughs> and, and Japanese and Mark, you, you nailed it there. Wow. That, like, that's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> yeah. I suppose when I sit down to, to prepare for the podcast, I'm thinking about songs. No, no, you've got to think about gags, basically. <laughs> and, and, and movies, the Titanic. <laughs> yes. That's right. Lots of Titanic references. I actually yeah. saw the was in Brisbane at Cloudland, and maybe you did too, Graham, because as I've said many times on this podcast. Yeah, I saw them at Cloudland. Anytime oh. anything vaguely post-punk or punk or new wave or even just loud and guitar-y, Mm. You, you went and saw it, and that was uh, that was the story with them. And never heard from them again. It was wow. a real one-off. I think they did have a second single, but they didn't really do much after this, mm. did they? How old were you when you went to see them? Well, what year was this? Nineteen eighty. So nineteen eighty. Yeah. Depending on what part of nineteen eighty, I was probably more likely to be fifteen. It was a great but show. D- yeah, I mean, I I really liked the album Nuclear Days. If you're speaking of puns, Nuclear Days. Mm, but it was actually called Nuclear Days. Slower, slower, Patrick. <laughs> what was it again? New, are you ready? Yep, which is good. <laughs> new is good. <laughs> new, new, new is good. <laughs> There's a Seinfeld episode that we are sort of in the process of um, re- referencing here, but we won't do that. But um, I, I really like the album. Yeah, me too. And I think 
it's on a par with either of the Jam's two first albums. And the Jam had a really strong connection with the band because they were managed at a certain point by Bruce from the Jam, mm. by Bruce Foxton and, uh, and John Weller, Paul's dad. Mm. Yes, he was the Jam manager, wasn't he? So I think they sold themselves a little bit short by having a kind of a novelty song as a single. It kind of made them seem like a bit of a throwaway band, but they could have been a lot bigger, I think, than they were. Mm. Well, he did have his law career to fall back on, so... Well, he, he ended up becoming the... Uh, David Fenton ended up becoming the in-house solicitor for the Musicians' Union. And so even... Well, the last reference I can find is in about 2014, and he was uh, still had exactly the same haircut <laughs> from 1980, uh, and, yeah, working working as a lawyer. I thought that they were touring again. Oh, they might be. Are we ready to move on? Yep. <laughs> sure. Yep. Okay, I'm, I'm still having a numerical thing here. So my number three is the Dickies with Banana Splits. I remember, this is a bit of a novelty song, but I remember seeing this song on Countdown or somewhere, and I was struck by the video where the microphones were bananas. Yes. uh, That really turned me into an interested observer, into a fan. Love that little detail. But I love the song in the old old 60s TV show, which I used to watch, except they Mm. played it about 10 times as fast. Um, It was a a big hit in the UK. It was number 10, I think it made. Uh, It was released in April 79. So it was in that same sort of time frame. Uh, What I know about the Dickies is that they were from San Fernando Valley in uh, California. They were the first band from California to get a major record deal on, on A&M, who apparently were looking for a more manageable punk <laughs> band than the Sex Pistols. Um, so they thought the Dickies might be it. And that they were also one of the, well, the first punk new wave band in America to get on uh, mainstream television with Don Rickles, who had a, a TV show called CPO Sharky, which was a show about uh, Don was in charge of some military base. And for some reason or another, some of the guys from the military base went to a punk club where the Dickies were playing and were sitting around a table watching these people pogoing and carrying on and, uh, and just, you know, quite bemused by the fact that this punk band were carrying on the way they were. Be that as it may. I love the fact that American uh, shows at the time, a lot of them had their punk episode. <laughs> yeah. Like um, WKRP in Cincinnati had one, Chips. I remember Chips had. Oh, ah, really? Yeah. Well, actually, their episode they were saying that punk is bad, but new wave is good. Uh, that was the message from that one. And how right they were. <laughs> I think that's a, that was America's take on the whole thing. Yeah, I think so. Um, but look, look, it was a great song. I think, and it's basic based on the Shorten and Bread melody, the old Shorten uh-huh. and Bread yeah, song yeah, back in yeah. the day. But they seem to make a, a career the Dickies out of doing covers. I think on their first album they had a Black Sabbath cover, Paranoid. Uh, they also had a hit later with Nights in White Satin. So they seem to pick these strange mm. songs to do covers. Yeah. Apparently they were fantastic live. Uh, they're still kicking around these days in various forms. Um, so they're still going. But, yeah, April 79, Banana Splits. Mm. That's me. Nice. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember really liking that song at the time. Um, and they also, uh, speaking of covers, they released a single, a very Dickies version of Silent Night. Which um, which got to number forty seven in the UK, and which is exactly as you would expect it. Well, I think they were the forerunner to a lot of the sort of pop punk 
bands in America threw up later, like Green Day and Good Charlotte and various other bands like that. Mm. Like, kind of, kind of fun, fast, silly, but you know, with a bit of attitude, but without the threat of sort of violence that the English bands. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you can see the, you can see the kind of the thread from them through to a band like Green Day for sure. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, that's me, number three. We're getting into the business end here. Um, I'm going to take you guys now to Echo Beach, Martha and the Muffins. This uh, song went to number six in Australia, number 10 in the UK, and I don't think they ever really hit those heights again, so they certainly qualify as a one-hit wonder. Mm. Martha and Muffins were a Canadian band from 1977. In 79, they went to England to record their first album. It was called Metro Music, and that was released in 1980, and it was produced by... Mike Howlett. Our old friend. (laughs) (laughs) Producer extraordinaire Mike Howlett of Gang of Four, Hunters and Collectors and others. That's right. Flock of Seagulls fame. And email correspondent of our colleague colleague Mark. (laughs) Yes, I I have bothered him a few times. (laughs) We'll have to change our name to the Mike Howlett podcast, I think. Mm, Well, he deserves When we do a producer's podcast, he definitely deserves one. Yeah. Absolutely. He recorded this at the Manor Studios in Oxfordshire, where um, Public Image recorded Metal Box and XTC recorded their albums. Once again, the chorus guitar, love the chorus guitar. Uh, up-tempo, fast beat. It's, it's almost has this B-52-style 60s beach movie feel, mm. although I may be saying that because beach is in the title, but um, <laughs> there's that organ sound in there as well. I remember dancing to this in Brisbane nightclubs, both cool and uncool. You're dancing? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, there, there was some top 40 nightclubs in Brisbane, like Sybil's, that would have played it as well as the top 40 music. But I remember dancing at the Terminus and places like that. The Roxy. I remember this being a song, as we've talked about before, that people who didn't like post-punk mm. and new wave yeah. liked. Yeah. I think a girl I was seeing at the time loved this song. It was sort of where we could agree on some of the music because it was it was that period, uh, where was it? Some, uh, 1980, 80. where you had Adam and the Ants coming yeah. out and uh, other things like this, uh, which was were hits and people kind of liked them and could see the... The, the enjoyable but it's a great song I just got a couple of FYIs here in 81 the bass player left and was replaced by a girl called Jocelyn Lanois if that surname is familiar to you mm, yeah. um, she's the sister of Daniel Lanois and Jocelyn got her brother to produce the next Martha and the Muffins album. So Daniel Lenoir's production career started with Martha and the Muffins. Ah, wow. And that was the, the, the greatest heights he ever reached with Martha and the Muffins? <laughs> yeah, that was it. That was, <laughs> that was it. Much, well done. That was pretty much it. <laughs> there were two Marthas in Martha. They should have been called Marthas and the Muffins. Ah. And how many muffins? <laughs> I think there were at least three. <laughs> could, could, could have been more. Mm. But I just wanted a, a quick word about the other Martha, Martha Ladley. She moved to the UK after she left Martha and the Muffins. She had a couple of singles herself. She joined the Associates, if you remember that band. Ah, yeah. yeah. Um, joined Robert Barmer's band. She worked in graphic design with Peter Saville for a while. She did suggest the album title Architecture and Morality to the Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark Band. Ah. She joined Peter Gabriel's band. And then um, 
and she's now a professor of design at the Ontario College of Art and Design. So, wow. Martha Ladley, what a what a checkered career. Yeah, yeah. So she's she's back in Canada, eh? Yeah, she's back. In, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, I really like Martha and the Muffins, and and mm. uh, there was an album they had out a couple of years later when they were calling themselves M M&M, and M, and. I think it was called Black Stations, White Stations. And hadn't that name already been taken? Eminem. It was taken much later. Although they were a one-hit wonder, they weren't a one-hit wonder to me. It's a hell of a one-hit to have. It's mm. a really, it's really, it's really catchy song. Yeah, yeah, pop that on any dance floor today, and you know it's a guaranteed floor filler. Okay, Patrick, give us your give us your number two. Uh, yeah, my next one is well, it was only hit in Australia, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but Screaming Jets by Johnny Warman. Last night, as I was dreaming, I saw the sky was bleeding. I heard the screaming jets. And Johnny had been around for a while. He was born in 1951, so he was 30 when he had his his one hit in Australia. Uh, he played in a band called Bearded Lady in the early 70s, which I suspect was as good as it sounds. <laughs> he, t- he toured with the circus, did he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and a few years later, he was signed by Ringo Starr's label, which was called Ring O Records, as in like an Irish surname, O Records. And I didn't even know Ringo had a, had a label, but anyway. But in any case, he found his kind of new wave sound and the particular album that this song came from uh, walking into mirrors uh, produced by vic coppersmith heaven who's best Ooh. known for his work with the jam but Thanks. vic coppersmith yes. vic coppersmith heaven also produced turning japanese by the vapors oh nice so ah. so two of my five are um, <laughs> vic coppersmith heaven joints. adjacent Yes. yes. But, uh, yeah, so this song got, got to number nine in Australia. Uh, he wrote it, Johnny Warman wrote it in half an hour, he said, immediately after watching the film uh, Apocalypse Now. And it's a rare and excellent example of a singer announcing the chords <laughs> in advance. Gee. Which is very helpful, and I think there should be a lot more of it. He lets you know when the chorus is, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Chorus. And, and the bridge as well, I think he might even announce. <laughs> if it sounds a little bit like a Peter Gabriel song. That was um, my next question. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Peter Gabriel sang backing vocals on it and several members of Peter Gabriel's band, including Peter Gabriel's bass player, John Giblin, who later joined and possibly destroyed Simple Minds, he played on this album. Did Phil Collins um, hit the skins on this? Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, Jerry Marotta, who mm. was the drummer for Peter Gabriel and Hall & Oates, I think, among other people. Ah, Graham, there you are. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and uh, while Johnny Warman's uh, career as a pop star, albeit in a limited Australian way, was over, he did appear in the Alexis Sale film clip for uh, A Low John Got a New Motor <laughs> in, in 1984, and he did subsequently write a song for Starship and for Ringo Starr. Wow. He did plenty. Very good. All right, well, I'm going to jump in at number two with. It may be a little controversial, but I don't think so. I'm going to go with pop music by M. Ah. Released in April 1979 by Robin Scott, 
who was yeah. about 32 at the time, another oldie. I'm going with this because I think pop music introduced the new wave to the USA in, in a way that kind of opened the doors and it predates MTV a bit, but it's got all of those mixture of sounds. And he said that he was writing this to kind of sum up the last 25 years of popular music. It was a number two hit in the UK, number one in America, number two in Australia. It was a massive, massive hit. Mm, mm. Um, the interesting thing about Robin Scott is that he'd been around for a long time before this um, came out. He had actually won the 1972 Search for a Star competition. <laughs> um, which is a good, you know, seven years prior to this and was offered a contract with EMI, which he turned down. He had also worked uh, with Julian Temple uh, and had done some recording with The Slits, Julian Temple being the great rock and roll swindle uh, director and The Slits, fantastic post-punk uh, all-female band. He also had a record label called Do It that Adam and the Ants, uh, early stuff was on. Um, they're the first album that they had on it, uh, was on Do It, and uh, I think they had Xerox and Car Trouble with the first couple of singles from the nascent Adam and the Ants before they hit the pop heights. So Robin Scott was an interesting character, and this song was a very slickly produced comment on uh, the state of music as it was. It also had Walla Vatterau and Full Good playing on it, who went on later to play mm. in Level 42 again, Graham. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a fantastic song. I remember hearing it. It was irresistible. And it's another one of those songs that probably still fill the dance floor these days. I think it's a post-punk new wave type of track because it's using everything available to it at the time and, and kind of showing the way towards where things are going to go. Well, that, that song, which, as you say, I was thinking, irresistible. So, um, yeah, just one of my favourite songs of that era. And when U2 did their Pop Mart tour, the concerts began with... A remix of that song. Yeah, oh, nice. It's, it still sounds as fresh today as it did mm. then, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And he never really did anything after this either. Once again, this, he sort of disappeared without trace. Back to where he'd come from. Mm. I've often wondered um, when he lists the, the list of cities. London, Paris, Munich, everybody talk about Do you think Munich got on the list because it rhymes with music? Hundred percent. Well, what other reason? You'd, you'd put Berlin in, otherwise. Yeah, that's right. You could have put Sydney. Well, I think I think the uh, capital was Bonn at the time, so I think the residents of Bonn have reason to feel a little bit aggrieved. Yeah, absolutely. Though Munich was more and more of a music centre, I think, in Germany, or had been up to that point. So that's maybe a reference to that because he'd lived in Europe in different places. But okay, well, my number one is a song song called A Girl in Trouble by Romeo Void. This came out in 1984. They were sort of an American new wave post-punk band from San Francisco. I've read this quote about the band. Uh, Someone had written this. uh, They said the band's muscular blend of Joy Division's atmospherics and the Gang of Four's rattling momentum with Benjamin Bossy's splattering free jazz saxophone colouring everything made Romeo Void one of the strongest of the American post-punk bands. I don't know whether I completely agree with that, but um, that, that, that was certainly good. I was, I was a fan. I had the first EP oh, okay. that um, Rick Ockerset produced and I also had the album that this is on. 
Basically, a girl in trouble is an outdated euphemism for an unwed woman that is pregnant. I think the point she was making with saying a girl in trouble is a temporary thing is that pregnancy lasts nine months, of course, so it's not forever. Uh, here the singer is describing an unwed pregnant mother who has decided to stop feeling the shame society is imposing on her and, and get on with her life. I read an interview with Deborah E. Isle, or Eel, I can't remember don't know how you pronounce her last name. She was the lead singer. Uh, she said that this song was a response to Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. Mm-hmm. Um, she said she loved that song and danced to it in clubs. But um, if some woman comes to you and says, I think you fathered my child, to respond, the kid is not my son, I thought was really cold. Mm-hmm. So Girl in Trouble was my answer to him. <laughs> so, so there you go. Michael. We are talking about Michael Jackson. Though. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, um, it has a whole raft of issues. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Graham, I we, have a question for you. I, I have to ask why you chose this song over the more well-known "I Might Like You Better If We Slept Together" because that's the song of theirs that I know really well, which I love. Yeah, I, I was going to, but weirdly, that song, although we all know it, it wasn't really a hit. Whereas "The Girl in Trouble" in America was like top twenty. It was, um, oh, okay. What year are we talking? Eighty-four. Uh, okay. So okay. Just snuck in. Just snuck in. But um, and you can tell, like, she sings the song in a more restrained delivery, and the beat was a sort of a straight four on the floor. Has a great sax riff in it. So I think they had their eye on the charts with this one anyway, and it kind of worked for them. But it, yeah, well, I don't think we really heard from them ever again. It's not quite as edgy as some of their earlier stuff, which I, yeah. which is sort of slightly kind of tinny power pop, mm. which I really like. So that's it. That's that's my number one. That's your five. Huh? Five that's to my one. Patty. Yeah. So yeah, my last one is a Belgian post-punk classic. You can probably see it coming. Ça plan pour moi, Plastic Bertrand. Plastic Bertrand, whose real name was, and I'm going to try, Roger Jure, uh, Roger Jure. Um, he studied at the Royal Conservatory of Music, um, and prior to Saint Pomois, he was a songwriter, singer, and drummer in a band called Hubble Bubble. So he wasn't just a pogoing fool. Um, and, <laughs> hey. <laughs> and if you have a listen to their single New Promotion, uh, which came out at roughly the same time as Saint I think it's pretty catchy. The controversy about that song, which is a remarkable story, that after a court case in 2010, the fellow who co-wrote and produced it, uh, whose name is Lou DePrike, I think, he sued Plastic Patron for royalties, I think, and the truth came out that Plastic hadn't actually sung on the song uh, and that DePrike had sung it. Oh, wow. And so this all came out in a court case. And if you have a look online, The Guardian has a story where Plastic Patron is kind of denying everything and then the following day Plastic Patron is admitting everything. <laughs> so, but, like, literally I think it is, like, the, the day after. It's consecutive <laughs> days of evidence being given in court. But in any case, and Dupreich said that he'd been keen to put his name to it originally 
And he said, I even offered to shave off my moustache. <laughs> so if you can picture stuff, Plant Poor Moi was actually sung by a bloke with a mo. I mean, I think that just changes everything. It does. <laughs> it does. I don't know how I feel about it now. Can I ask? Can I yes. can I refer to Plastic by his first name? Yeah, um, yeah, that that is a traditional Belgian Christian name. Okay, so what did Plastic actually do on the song if he he did not uh, sing? Yeah, I I don't know that he did anything. I'm not sure. That's a good question. <laughs> well, Plastic has certainly revealed himself as a bit of a fake. <laughs> yes, very good. Um, great mm. song. I remember that being one of the very first sort of post punk pop sort of songs that, that once again people could kind of get their head around I suppose and it was yeah, it was a big yeah, hit yeah. wasn't it? it was a hit in Australia it was a hit all, all yeah, over yeah, the place. yeah 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 absolutely it was it was uh, number eight in the UK number two in Australia number forty seven in the US which was pretty good going for nineteen seventy seven or seventy eight mm. uh, and it got the Joe Strummer seal of approval he said it was a bloody good record that will get any comatose person toe tapping so it was kind of seen as being you know a slightly kind of plasticky kind of disposable song but you know i just thought it was fantastic mm. yes i love it the video is great too if you get a chance to look at it well i guess it uh it comes to me to do the last one mm. my number one and it might be a little controversial is my sharona by the knack i'm gonna give a bit of an explanation as to why I chose this. I mean, the Knack have got a bit of a backstory. They were kicking around Los Angeles for a while. They weren't young guys. They'd sort of been around for a while. But I think their idea was to marry the kind of 60s sensibility of short, sharp sort of pop songs, maybe Beatles kind of songs with the new wave, the emerging new wave. This was released in June 79 and it was a massive hit. UK number six, US number one, Australia number one. And probably the first, you know, look at wave success for these you know, this type of music in America anyway. Um, he wrote it about his uh, girlfriend, Sharona Alperin, who was eight years younger than he was. How old was he, 18? <laughs> <laughs> that, I don't know. I think he was a little older than that. Uh, produced by Mike Chapman, an Australian by birth, but he had done Blondie's Parallel Lines. Mm. Um it was the yeah, 60s feel and look, but with a new wave kind of power pop sensibility. Uh, it also by the by, launched Weird Al Yankovic's career, which I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> the first um, parody song he ever did was My Bologna. Ah. <laughs> it's a parody of this. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, be that as it may, I, I think this is a real milestone song because it's unbelievably catchy. It's a mm. simple song, but it's yeah. just perfect pop. It's everything that's good about New Wave and all of those things. It's got the skinny ties. And I'm sure bands like The Strokes would never have you know, existed without the knack because <laughs> half yeah. the members look, look like the same band. Yeah, um, yeah I, I still think it's a great song. Once again, they kind of disappeared. They had another single not long after, it was, which cracked the top 20, I think. But I don't think they had anything like the success again. The second album mm. you know, didn't do anything and they kind of, I guess, have been living off this one big hit ever since. There it is, my Sharona. Nice. I love this song. I think um, the hype 
around them at the time ended up being a real problem for them because my, my recollection is that when that song came out and that album came out, people were talking about the band as if they were, you know, literally the next Beatles, the future of rock and roll and all that. You know, that was the, it, I mean, it might have been like the, the promotional campaign behind them, but but whatever it was, it was extremely off-putting to a lot of people, I think, which is a shame because a song like, like My Serona was, you know, was worthy of the hype. Mm, absolutely. Well, a- absolutely. But I guess you've got to say, you know, if they only ever did one thing and they're remembered for one thing, it's a hell of a good thing to be remembered for. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they did acknowledge that the beat is kind of a rip-off of, of another song. Which which was interesting. I felt going to a go-go by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles from 1965. So everything old was new again. I think they pretty much acknowledged that the whole idea that they had was pretty much, you know, trying to do the 60s, I suppose, in mm. a way. But but as a song, it's incredibly sharp and incredibly catchy and well-produced. And it's kind of perfect pop, if you like, or whatever it is, three and a half minutes. Mm. Um, and just ends like on, an, on a real high. So I think um, if, if that's the introduction America had to New Wave, well, then, you know, it wasn't a bad one. No, no. And, and it was absolutely massive as well. It was the number one song of 1979 for the whole year in the US, which is pretty remarkable given that the likes of Fleetwood Mac and you know, those kind of bands were, were around at the time, and the Eagles and you know, bands who were more typically going to be selling millions and millions of records. Mm. Absolutely. Graham, you, you're a fan? Yeah, I love the song. It had a resurgence, uh, I think, during the 90s. It was on the soundtrack to a, a Reality Bites. So I think it charted again then. Ah. But yeah, I've always loved it. I always loved it. I think it's a great song. How are we going to win this one, by the way, guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was wondering well, that. I was just going to say, I suppose the idea behind it was just to sort of, um, I, I mean, I don't know, when we talked about this, it was a while ago. I just, I, I thought it was interesting that we had new wave bands or post-punk bands that had one one hit, sort of a fairly big hit, and then disappeared, and we never sort of heard of them again. We're more familiar with all the big bands that we talk about, you know, you your Gang of Fours, your Joy Divisions, your Wires, and, and everybody else. Mm. And, but, but these guys are like, people have forgotten them probably, apart from the one song. And, and, you know, they're still important, these bands, because they broke through, you know, into the charts for a start. And as I said about Martha and the Muffins and a few other people, it actually opened up people's ears to the fact that this sort of music could be fun and popular and interesting, because prior to these songs being in the charts, certainly amongst my acquaintances and people I knew, they were sort of suspicious of anything that was deemed new mm. wave or, or post-punk. So I think these kind of uh, spike points in, in the culture are worth noting. 